0: Hey there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for Coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome to another episode of t for c If you're an aspiring journalist, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest is the executive producer and project director for multi-platform initiatives for WNET, America's flagship PBS television station that is producing content both for the national PBS television stations as well as for New York-based programming. But before I introduce you to the amazing Eugenia Harvey, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's our weekly newsletter that gives you a sneak peek of the episodes we're going to be dropping that week. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number and the sign-up box is right there on the homepage. And while you're there, I want to invite you to scroll down on the homepage to see all the other episodes we've dropped to date that are actually organized by career. Now, my friends, please grab your mug and take a chug of a delicious caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my wonderful next guest is someone I am so excited to have the privilege of interviewing. Eugenia Harvey is currently Executive Producer, Project Director for WNET's multi-platform initiatives responsible for day-to-day execution and management of Chasing the Dream, Poverty and Opportunity in America, and for Peril and Promise, the Challenge of Climate Change. Eugenia is an award-winning producer showrunner and television executive with a wide range of experience in both commercial and public media. Most recently, she served as an executive producer for The Third Rail with Ozzy.com. Previously, she was the series producer of Race Matters Solutions series for the PBS NewsHour with Charlene hunter Gold. She also worked on various high-profile projects for BET, A&E, ABC News, CBS News, and CNN. Eugenia, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? Yes, I am ready. Awesome. So let us get right into it. You are the executive producer, the EP, of Two massive multi-platform initiatives at WNET, Chasing the Dream and Peril and Promise. And before I ask you to take us inside these projects, could you please explain to our listeners, Eugenia, what you, as the executive producer, are overseeing with respect to these two projects? What are the functions, the teams, all the various moving pieces that report up to you?
1: This is an extraordinary initiative, both of them, actually, because they give us an opportunity to have a footprint in two of the most, I think, important issues affecting our society right now. Climate change, which is peril and Promise, and Chasing the Dream, which is about economics, poverty, opportunity in America. I mean, that's kind of it, right? (laughs) We spend a lot of time talking about and caring about this. so. Under the initiatives and therefore under me, we find projects under the both PBS and WNET universe that are relevant. So I work with other executive producers on these shows and their staff. And as they are developing their editorial work initiatives. They come to me and they say, hey, listen, we really have this amazing four-part documentary series on sinking cities and what global cities are doing to save it. Can you participate? And I take a look at it and I say, wow, this fits exactly what the stories that we like to produce and fund and support. And we have a lot of meetings <laughs> with producers who are producing documentary films and we discuss editorial things. We ride the editorial train with them for as long as it takes to get the films completed. So there are a lot of phone calls, a lot of meetings, a lot of script writing, a lot of looking over the projects. And then of course we're invested literally in seeing these projects to successful fruition. We work on a more regular basis with our shows, the PBS NewsHour Weekend, which is produced here at WNET. We also work with our colleagues and friends at at the PBS NewsHour daily show. We Check in with them editorially. They check in with us editorially. We fund, we finance, and we provide the support for the stories that fall under either the Chasing the Dream umbrella or the Peril and Promise. So it's a combination of light editorial oversight, if you will, or participation. Let's say participation. It's not oversight because every show has its own very strong executive producer. But as project director, I am constantly in touch with them to make sure that their content remains in line with our grant, by the way, our grant funded initiatives. So it's combination editorial and financial support. And then by the way, when we do a big project, we just recently had a huge four-hour documentary series called Sinking Cities, where we looked at how cities in Tokyo, New York, London and Miami were faring as their water levels are rising and how they're coping with it, in some cases struggling, in some cases successfully, and how they're dealing with it. Well, because it was a huge project and it involved a number of key players, we hosted an event, which the producers came, supporters came, viewers came, press came, and you know we let them know all about this project. And that was exciting unto itself to be able to, you know, my team literally played
0: Party planner. <laughs> that wouldn't have been one of the job responsibilities that I would have guessed that you were playing. And in fact, during the Espresso Shots episode, which we just recorded, you described yourself, Eugenia, like a conductor. Mm. Mm-hmm. Could you mm-hmm. break that down for our listeners so that they can appreciate what it is you're conducting? What all those different teams are doing that are part of this amazing project, the two projects that WNET is spearheading?
1: It is a great analogy because that's what it requires. It requires hearing everything that everybody is doing and looking for that common thread. Let's call it the tempo to stay with our analogy. So- as the show, for example, Nature, which is a massive jewel in the PBS crown, is currently doing a project that I'm not sure I can talk about, but it currently doing a really big project in Nature, and there is an opportunity for us to participate. Us, meaning the peril and promise team, and in our ongoing meetings with each of the shows, you know, I heard about this project, and my ears perked up. So I met with the executive producer and I said, you know, what you're doing, let's call it the Polar Ice Caps Project. I said, what you're doing is right in line with what we're doing. Can we talk? And we are currently in a series of conversations to see where we could possibly participate. Another piece of this orchestral analogy is there are so many, Andrea and and listeners, there are so many really bright and creative producers who work here in all the various divisions, including our social media, including our our website development. Somebody handed me an article about climate initiatives all around the world. And I sat with my team. I have my immediate team, for example. I've got a social PA and I have a producer who are with us every day. And then we ramp up as projects keep going.
0: We should say, I'm sorry to interrupt, Eugenia, but a PA is a production assistant that is also an entry-level kind of position for young people to keep their eyes and ears open for.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Very, very, very important. They are the lifeblood of any production. So we have other colleagues who work in other divisions who might see something and they think, oh, this is really interesting. This is really clever. I don't work in your division, but I want to hand this to you. And if there's an opportunity for me to work on it, I'd love to. And of course, you know, if I'm able to pull it off, if you will, I will make that happen. Because great ideas come from everywhere. That's a part of the orchestration, especially with chasing the dream. We have independent producers who pitch ideas to us all the time that are relevant, that are about poverty, that are about opportunity, that are about economy. We listen to those pitches. We look at the experience of the producers. And we had one recently called Getting Off the Streets about homelessness in Camden, New Jersey. It wouldn't necessarily seem like an immediate fit. But as we heard Jamila Paxmina with her pitch and listened to the things that she had to say, it turned into a beautiful digital series, first of all, and then it turned into a wonderful half hour event. So all of these things get factored in to the daily pitch of it. Also, I take a lot of meetings, <laughs> I will say that. I'm sorry to hear that. i <laughs> <laughs> take a lot of meetings, but you know what? I go into every meeting thinking, why am I here? And what could this mean? I always see it as an opportunity and you never, ever know. Sometimes it's a meeting of an old friend who's a friend of PBS. Turns out she wanted to make a small donation to our efforts here. So... <laughs> That's the advantage of PBS, right? You cannot do that at a network.
0: (laughs) Right, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Eugenia, as I'm listening to you talk about the various functions of being a conductor for multimedia content, I'm hearing a couple of things come out. One of which is the fact that perhaps what makes you so good, your secret sauce, is being an optimist and hearing potential stories, Mm -hmm. knowing who are going to be the right storytellers. Mm -hmm. What, What do you think about that?
1: Oh, 100%. That is my secret sauce. I see most opportunities as just that, opportunities. I see most events as opportunities. I see most meetings as opportunities. You're either going to win or you're going to learn. And By when, sometimes that means you start a new relationship with someone, they may be a source of information for you, or I may be a source of information for them. There's a free flow. If you constantly look at what you're doing, no matter what it is, by the way, as some kind of burden, the net result is always going to be a lose, because you're going to burn out, you're going to be tired, you're going to be bored. I say all the time, and I said on the Espresso shots, that insatiable curiosity is truly the secret sauce for anybody wanting to do anything in journalism. You have to go into every event as,
0: wow, what's going to happen now? <laughs> (laughs) exactly you have always been in television is that right i had a small detour
1: during my post cnn years i had a small marketing and pr firm and i needed a couple of years off and so i took them we just come out of a really grueling news period of the clinton impeachment phase Mm -hmm. and doing nightly shows on cnn for almost two years were just grueling and an opportunity came along for me to actually step out of the daily grind of television for a couple of years. And I took it. I took it. But I came right back. (laughs) I couldn't stay away. I could not stay away.
0: Absolutely. But in terms of the field of journalism, Mm -hmm. you chose the broadcast path. Why did you pick the visual medium, and Eugenia, why did you choose to remain behind the camera rather than in front as an on-air talent? Well, I was sitting in my journalism course. Let me back up for a
1: little bit. I was pre-med in undergraduate school. I was pre-med for two years, and it was time to take the pre-med labs that started at 6 a.m., way across campus at the University of Georgia. It was at least a 40-minute bus ride. And my 19-year-old self said, oh, God, what can I major in that starts at 10? (laughs) (laughs) True, the true story. And the journalism school held classes right next door in Reed Hall. And I lived in Red Hall next door. It was a J school, and I went into the journalism 101 class. And my professor was talking about traveling the world, asking questions. She was actually a photojournalist for Time Magazine, Dr. Beverly Bethune. And the class had a thousand people in it. It was one of those huge 101 courses. And I kept interrupting her, raising my hand, and going, "Wait a minute! You get paid to ask questions." <laughs> And she said, yeah. And I was like, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. You get to travel the world? And she said, yes. And so after my fourth question, she said, why don't you just see me after class? (laughs) And as I kept taking classes, I immediately that day called my mom and said, you know, I'm not going to be a doctor. I I think I want to be a journalist. And as I continued to take courses, I realized that I could actually shape editorial content behind the camera more so than in front of it. The producers, especially the executive producers, were the ones who very often wrote the scripts or certainly shaped them. And they told the story. Sometimes they picked the stories. And it was up to the on-air reporters to translate it. They had to be the articulate ones. They had to be the ones, as you know, to stand in front of a building for hours on end and try to pull Scrapple out of garbage that <laughs> gets thrown at them. But I could sit the big stage. And I was a stage setter. I was a big scene setter. That was that was just part of my personality. That was my thought process. That's how I processed information. Yes, I could be quick on my feet, but not like people like you who could literally stand there. Plus, I, you know, I don't think I really looked the part You know, this was in the late late 80s and 90s, and I wasn't a leggy blonde.
0: (laughs) Well, listen, we'll get into a little bit more about you as an African American journalist. But I do want to push back very gently on the fact that you weren't articulate enough. You could have easily been an on-camera correspondent. One of the things I want to ask you about, though, is the medium. You have almost always done long-form projects, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: long-form television stories, live shows, specials, documentaries, and I'm going to list a few of them here, whether it was at CNN when you executive produced specials on Nelson Mandela, on Roe versus Wade, Acts of Faith, which was a special on religion, but you've also dedicated a lot of your professional life to reporting on race relations and being Black in America. It was called Divide lines at CNN, then at Black Entertainment TV, you EP'd shows on African American life, including The N Word, Marriage, Divorce, Money, Child Rearing, Life and Housing Projects, many, many things, and an hour-long show with one of the best titles ever, Five Things You Can Do to Change Shit. (laughs) (laughs) That was a BET News special in 2016. (laughs) Again, I am just abbreviating here, I have two questions. Why long form and why the particular focus on race and race relations? Look at the topics. You can't get those done in a minute and a half.
1: You just can't. I wanted to tackle, remember the old adage, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? How do you tell a story about race? How do you tell a story about divorce? How do you talk about poverty. How do you do that? It just takes time. Even now in this sort of subsected storytelling that we have in the digital space, to do it well, to do it right, to do it in a way that represents at least most of the myriad voices that are out there, you've got to intrigue people and tell them a story. We still go to movies. We still watch movies. So there's still a place for a long form story we've grown impatient because we can get our information via tweet or via an Instagram story. And there's a place for that. We do that here. We do that now, but there's something about being able to tell someone's story and all of its complexities and all of its color and all of its shading to get to the heart of the matter. And that takes time. It takes time. I learned that early on, one of my techniques for doing long form interviews was to just tire people out because I discovered early on that, you know, in the first 10 minutes of an interview, most people, especially now, they talk in sound bites. When they see a TV camera, they know they've got to pop that information out right away, right? But I was at CBS, I was in an interview in a prison interviewing this guy, and he was going on and on and on about what it was. And I let him blather and then took a little break. And we came back and he literally starts the interview with, yeah, I killed her. (laughs) I was like, wait, what? And I
0: realized, okay, now I have a story. Wow. So what about the focus on race and race relations? When you see me, you see I'm black.
1: And that means a lot of things to a lot of people. It's very often what other people see first. And I personally now believe that it is the issue in America that has to be dealt with before we can heal ourselves and move forward. And I have felt that since 1989. When I first did a story called True Colors at ABC and we put a black guy and a white guy in identical situations, they actually looked alike and had them. They were actually professional testers and we had them try to find a home, look for jobs, etc. And it turned into a landmark piece. A lot of companies actually use that story to train for bias. And that was great. And that was wonderful. And that was a beautiful accolade. that actually did change my career. But it also changed my life because I grew up very sheltered and privileged, even though I grew up in the 70s in the South. I still had loving family and friends, both black and white, and and mentors and teachers who really looked out for me and protected us. And so as I began to observe the world through the eyes of journalists and meet people who did not grow up like I did and who did not grow up with what I had, I did become aware painfully that race played a part in it. And so I just gravitated towards stories that pointed out our similarities and the absurdity of being treated differently by the one thing that we were different. In. It just seemed crazy to me, right? The only thing that's really different most of us. We have the same desires. We want love. We need food. We need exercise. We need shelter. Everyone wants the same thing. The difference is the color of our skin. In America's history, of weaponizing flesh tones to make a system of polarity based on just the skin you're born in. And it it seemed absurd to me. Now, of course, there's literature, there's science, there's art. There are kinds of readings and extraordinary philosophies and, and amazing punditry. Uh, surrounding these issues but it all boils down to your DNA the color of your skin it's how your D and your N and your A settle in that determines the skin color and when you're born into this country it defines so very much and I just thought that was crazy let's just look at this (laughs) how else can we crack this nut okay we've done the violence we've done the story via the violent movements we've done the history let's look at stories that Examine our similarity, and then let's look at stories that move the conversation further along.
0: Eugenia, how should aspiring African-American journalists prepare for this industry? Be smart. Your
1: song is not a one-note song. Approach it from the view of, okay, we're going to win. We're going to win. I'm going to win in the sense that I'm going to get to tell my stories. I'm going to win in the sense that I'm going to be a journalist So I would say, be a journalist first, learn what that means, learn how to investigate, learn how to research, learn how to find the people who tell the stories and just be really good at that. And then have a thick skin. There are going to be people who have jobs who are not going to hire you because they don't know any black people and they don't know how they are. I literally had a conversation with someone, a white manager not here, who said, about this really capable young candidate that he doesn't smile a whole lot. And I said, is it because he's listening to you? <laughs> you know, Like, what, what do you mean? What if he's just listening to you? I mean, I listen intently to people and I'm not looking at them like a clown with a big goofy smile on my face. Like, what are you talking about? And this manager had to rethink and said to me, you know what, maybe you're right. The, the candidate that I was talking about is African-American. And I think had I not been in the room and having that conversation with that particular manager, it could have gone a different way. He may have completely ignored this candidate. So that's a cultural thing. People will always have young viewers of color. People will always have their own perspective brought in. I don't believe it's your responsibility to always try to make People feel comfortable in a very negative sense. But I also don't think it's right to make them feel uncomfortable either because people want to work with people they want to work with. That's just the truth, right? You can be really great, but if you're a jerk, no one wants to work with you, period. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. It doesn't matter what your, your race or gender is. So be the candidate, be the person, be the smart one, be the one that brings it to the table and keep going until you find your fit and try not to get terribly discouraged because it can be discouraging.
0: Now, I would say that this industry can be very brutal. Yeah. How is it different if you're black?
1: How do I start that? It is different if you're black because sometimes you don't even get the chance and you don't even know that. You wouldn't even know. You just didn't get a call back or you got the call back and then sort of dissolve. But sometimes you just don't even get called. It's different when you're Black in that, again, people may have their own perceptions and perspectives about you. And that has nothing to do with you. It's also different in a glorious way in that you bring a voice and a tone, and a set of experiences that other people just don't have. And use that. Use that 100%. I'm a Southern Black woman who grew up in Barnesville, Georgia. And now I'm in New York City with, really, my dream job in television news. And I bring that to the table every day. I bring those experiences every day. Whenever I look at a story, I think, well, I know somebody like that or, oh, I don't know anybody like that. What do they have to say? So bring what you have and let one of the things that you have be insatiable
0: curiosity. Fantastic advice. Eugenia, if you could go back and do it all over again in terms of how you built your career based on the advice you are giving young aspiring journalists, in particular those of color, African-American journalists, documentarians, what would you do differently?
1: The only thing I would do differently is stay in it. Stay in the game. Don't be afraid to branch out into digital (laughs) a little earlier, (laughs) or don't be afraid to take jobs that were not at news networks. Check out BuzzFeed. Check out Apple News. Recognize that legacy broadcasting entities are wonderful and can change, but don't be impatient as they are making the changes. Again, Continue to be consistently engaged and energetic. Try not to get burned out. Try to balance out your personal life a little bit more so that you're not all work. Because I did spend a lot of time just working.
0: I think that is... Phenomenal advice. And I actually think because I'm thinking back on the 20 years I was a journalist and Mm. there is something about the profession that just pulls you in 24-7. And of course, Mm. you and I both worked at CNN, which is 24-7. And so many of these, whether it's legacy or whether it's boutique, online, multimedia platforms, can be 24 7 because of social media. So I think you're right. You have to build your own kind of safety net so mm-hmm. that you are in it for the long run and not running a sprint. This is a marathon. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Eugenia, how do you compare your time at CBS, at ABC, at CNN, at BET? and then working at places like women.com networks and doing some of these other programs for other news organizations?
1: The difference is budgets. And I recognize that even the budgets at the networks have changed considerably. But I have done stories, especially investigative stories and undercover stories at ABC, where I worked on one story for a year. Nine months. I think nine months was actually long. And that is just a luxury that does not exist anymore. And I would consider those the glory days of broadcasts where you could just, just a beautiful, beautiful privilege. But each of the networks that I worked at, the larger ones whose names that you recognize immediately had unlimited resources and you feel like a rich lady. You know, like, oh, today I will do a story. And, uh,
0: <laughs> you know what I didn't mention because I had your CV turned over to one side, but you worked at the Gospel Music Channel, at Arise TV Networks, at Caffeine TV. Hello. <laughs> I mean, you've got such diversity in the kinds of places that you've worked. Eugenia, I want to ask you about the difference between executive producing multi-platform initiatives or hour-long documentaries And being an executive producer on, for example, the Steve Harvey Morning Show, that is a nationally syndicated program, Mm -hmm. and you executive produced 100 episodes of that, Mm -hmm. what was different between that and then doing the longer form show? Well, we did a cut down. So that show, the Steve Harvey Project
1: was the cut down of his nationally syndicated morning radio show. And that show that we did was broadcast each night on BET. And that was a day that started for me at 4am because his show was on from 6 to 10. And he would finish the show, we would cut them down, we cut down each hour. And we were filming it in the radio studio. It was insane. He's one of the funniest people. What you see of Steve Harvey on television is about a third as funny as he is in real life. So we lost a lot of time to just laughing. Like, <laughs> <laughs> that's a good excuse. <laughs> it is, it is. But an extra hour had to be built into every day, just laughing at just sheer shenanigans. But that's one where you have to be literally on top of Every word that was said, because if there is a cuss word <laughs> or if there is a, you know, a music reference, if he sings a song because he's riffing and you don't have musical clearances for that song, I have to hear all of that. I have to hear every single word many, many times. And I spent six hours a day in an edit room working between three editors, actually, to get the show cut down and then married and Sent to feed because we didn't have a feed line in the studio. And so my day was literally from 4 a.m. until 6 p.m.
0: Oh my God.
1: And that included the hour for laughter. That is wildly different from being the project director and EP for multi platform initiatives here because I have teams, everything's coordinated. This is public broadcasting. It's like being on the campus of an Ivy League school that has a television studio. And many of the students also work part-time at the post office. Like (laughs) it's this real cross of academia and government work and actual television. It's some of the smartest people I've ever worked with. Not that the Steve port people are not smart, but it's, you can literally walk down the halls and Talk to somebody and they can talk to you about the latest biography of John Meacham's book that he's doing on presidential history. It's just a different, different vibe. Again, this one is more meetings. Working on a show where I'm the showrunner is definitely more TV, more technical, more intensity on a daily basis.
0: So, Eugenia, if you could just very quickly give us an insider's perspective of the two multimedia projects you're overseeing, Chasing the Dream and Peril and Promise?
1: They're both new initiatives. So in 2014, WNET launched Chasing the Dream on Poverty and Opportunity. And it's based on just that, poverty, jobs, opportunity, economic issues, economic equality. And over the years, over those four years, we've actually produced hundreds of segments that have been all over the PBS in the 13 universe. Sometimes the difference is whether or not you go to Seattle to do a story versus to do that story in New Jersey, or whether or not you can stay on the story a little bit longer and turn it into a documentary. So again, in the PBS bubble and universe where every penny counts and every story is monitored for other levels, that's extraordinarily important. I'm the same thing for Peril and Promise. We have a series that we fund that we're finding that a lot of young people really like. It's called Hot Mess, and it's produced by PBS Digital Studios. And I am so excited about it because it really, truly is, I think, one of the leading digital shows on climate change. And every time I talk to the producers about what they're doing next, you know, my heart rate goes up. (laughs) So they are so smart and you're so good. And so we continue the conversations. We continue funding them. We want to do more. And a great bulk of my days now figuring out how to do more how to create strategic partnerships with climate organizations, how to create strategic partnerships with organizations and with individuals who do work with poverty, who do work with opportunity, who want to level the playing field. When it comes to economic inequality, I want to figure out every way possible to tell as many stories as we possibly can to make a difference. We want to impact the lives of people affected by those two entities.
0: Fantastic. Fantastic. Thank you so much for that, Eugenia. I try to ask every Time for Coffee guest about a time in your professional life when you struggled. Now, in my case, there were many, many times. Eugenia, is there a quick story that you could tell us about when you really wondered how you were going to make it through the other side. And the reason that I ask this question is to really help young people appreciate the fact that we all have our ups and our downs and getting back to something that you discussed in our espresso shots about the importance of building resilience so Mm -hmm. that you've got that grit to take you through those tough times. Yeah. I've had a
1: lot of them, (laughs) but this is an important story. It's not going to go the way you think it's going to go, but it's really important. Okay. Okay. I had just wrapped 100 episodes with Steve Harvey. And after I slept for a week and I did, I woke up and I realized I was unemployed. I was in Atlanta and I bought this home, which I still own. And I wasn't sure what my next step was. I had some money in the bank, but certainly not enough to wonder what I was going to do with the rest of my life. <laughs> you know, I couldn't take that tour around the world for a year that I often fantasized about being able to do. I'll never forget this. I was sitting on my couch and watching television and I thought, I want to do something global. I don't know what it is, but I want to do something global. And Every day for about a month, I just kept saying I want to do something global. I want to do international stuff. And I'd never done international stories, but I don't know whether I was sort of calling it in or putting it out there. But I got this phone call saying that there was a a project in Egypt that was a documentary and it was all messed up. And they'd had an executive producer and they'd spent a lot of money and they only a little money left. Of course, you called me, right? (laughs) But at the end of the budget, but he had enough money to bring me over to Egypt for six months or so and to fix it. And I thought, well, that's global. And it was something I'd never done before. And I'd never been to Egypt. I'd been to the Middle East, but I'd never lived in any of those places for any considerable amount of time. And once we got the financial stuff wearing away, I packed my passport and my favorite necessities and I got on a plane. I didn't know where I was going. I knew who was going to meet me. I didn't speak the language. I just kept going. And I took it all as this sign that if you can figure out in your mind what you want, even if it's not clearly defined, but if you can just figure out in your mind what it is, whether it's global, whether it's news, whether it's education, or whatever it is, if you can just find the noun. I think you get the rest of the sentence. And that changed my life because in the month of August, I was utter confusion and exhaustion. In September, I had a business
0: class ticket to Cairo. You know what that reminds me of, Eugenia? It reminds me of manifesting.
1: Do Mm -hmm. you meditate? I pray and meditate. I'm actually a Christian, and I'm lousy at meditating, is actually because I think... (laughs) <laughs> I mean, just, all of that to say, Christianity is like, okay, please God, please God, please God. And meditating is more like, I'm going to focus and do this. I think I was meditating when I got the Egypt. I think I did manifest that. But
0: there's a but, fantastic online meditation course called Ziva Meditation, and I actually interviewed the founder. in episode 58, Emily Fletcher. And the way that she teaches, it's your mindful, which is being present in the here and now. Mm -hmm. The meditation is the quieting of the mind. And then in the last few minutes, after you let go of your mantra, You think about whatever that dream is that you want in addition to being grateful for what you have in your life, Mm -hmm. but what is it that you want to achieve? And that is the process of manifesting, of bringing it into reality. Mm -hmm. So it sounds to me like you were doing a form of that Mm -hmm. and you brought your dream into reality. So that was really powerful. Final time for coffee question. If you could go back to college, go back to the University of Georgia and do it all over again, Eugenia, but based on the wisdom that you have now, what advice would you give yourself? Marry the
1: guy. (laughs) Marry the guy. Marry the guy. Have the kids. I would definitely give myself that advice. That's the only thing I probably would do differently, like, honestly. And, I, and it's chicken and egg, right? I don't know that I'd be able to have done all the things work-wise that I had if I, if I married that guy. I probably would have been able to do it but That would be my advice.
0: Well, I have to say, having done <laughs> now over 100 interview with professionals all across the spectrum, mm. that is the first time I've heard that <laughs> answer. So <laughs> yeah. But you know what I have to say, Eugenia? As mm. I thank you, So much for making Time for Coffee today with me and the Time for Coffee community is that going back to what you started out majoring in at the University of Georgia in medicine, I actually think that the field that you selected, journalism, has allowed you to work on healing our nation healing the racial divide. That's making me cry. I'm extraordinarily grateful. Thank you for saying that. Thank you. Because that truly is how I see you. Oh, wow. Thank you. And the reason that I couldn't talk is that I'm crying too, but I didn't want to be crying. But I think that's what you're doing. Mm. Had you ever thought about that?
1: Never. Never. I mean, I always ask that my life not be in vain and that my work matter. And I guess you never really know whether you mean anything to anybody outside of the immediate orbit but if you're right then that is boy me to keep on
0: thanks so much for listening to time for coffee where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24 7 no matter where you live i have one quick favor to ask you remember to rate review and subscribe to time for coffee thanks so much